Romans chapter 8. Let's look this morning. We're going to read, just to set the context, we're only going to look at verse 28, but we need to set the context a little bit. So let's start in verse 26. Look at the verses Pastor Jess read last time and taught on last time, and then we will pray. Verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then our text for this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we now come to this portion of our service where we open your word and we explain it. And so I'm asking now, Lord, for your help by the Spirit to gift me in a way that I am not gifted to explain the truth of this text. And I'm asking that the Spirit would open hearts and eyes and ears to hear and receive it, understand it, and praise you for your working all things together for good. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the second half of Romans 8, you probably caught this, starting really in verse 17, Paul has honed in on a theme of suffering and glory. Verses 17 and 18, of course, is where this begins, and it sets the larger context that the verses last week and verse 28 today, are set in. So we need to understand verse 28 in this larger context of suffering and glory. Two critical points from verses 17 and 18, I think, that apply here. First, suffering leads to glory, verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then verse 18, the suffering now is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Last week in verses 26 and 27, Pastor Jess brought out the help that God gives to his suffering children, right? It's the help of the Spirit interceding for us because we don't know what or how we should pray in these times because we are living under the weight of creation being subjected to futility. That's the state of the world, that's the state that we live in, and we need help. So we need help from the Spirit interceding. But the Spirit interceding is not the only help that God gives to His children. God gives to His children, we see in verse 28, knowledge and understanding of His larger purposes. He gives us understanding as to what the final outcome will be. Now, not in detail, but generally, the general description of what is coming. So verse 28 is a help in that way. God helps us. He helps us by giving us knowledge. And knowledge, understanding, is helpful in suffering. Right? If you know where this is headed, it's helpful. If you're sick and you know, okay, well, this is kind of where this disease is progressing, well, then I know what to kind of do, right, or respond so knowledge is helpful. Christians need knowledge or understanding would be another way to translate that word amidst the confusing 
noise of a groaning creation. Right? That's the language that Paul has used to describe creation. It's groaning. And in the midst of groaning creation, God comes and he gives clarity and he gives assurances and he gives certainties. So in suffering, this is the first thing you need to understand from verse 28, and we're going to flesh this out now, is that we need knowledge and we need understanding of God's larger purposes, right? He starts verse 28, and we know. We know. Do you realize that Christianity is a religion of certainty? Right? It's a religion of certainty when we think about Christians on their deathbed, They know when they die, they will go into the presence of the Lord. They do not fear judgment, and they know that because they're trusting in Christ alone. So they're secure and certain in that way, contrasted with the rest of the world or those who are in a a false religion that says, do more in order to be saved. Christianity is a religion of certainty, but it's also a religion of certainty and that God's purposes are not hidden. God's purposes are very plain. You see this throughout the New Testament in several places, but the one that stood out to me as I was thinking about this is in the Gospel of John, okay? There are at least nine instances in John's Gospel where Jesus is saying or John is writing, and they're using phrases like this, so that you may know, so that you may believe. Why? Because they want you to be very certain about things, Jesus is making it very clear for his sheep the things they need to know. Christianity is a religion of certainty. And so Paul begins verse 28, and what? We know, right? We are certain about these things. One other thing I want you to notice in chapter 8, and it illustrates the kind of certainty we can have, right? In verse 22, what does Paul say? He begins verse 22, and or for we know. And then what's he going to go on and say, we know? We know creation is groaning. We know that creation has been subjected to futility. And here's the point. Is there anyone in this room that doubts that? It's like, ah, maybe it's not, right? Does anybody else in the morning, your body groans? Mine did this morning when I kicked the bed with my funny bone. That created a groan. But there's more than just that temporary groaning. But all of creation is groaning, right? We groan at the brokenness we see in the world and in our own lives and in our families. Do we groan that the world celebrates and promotes evil? Do we groan when a loved one dies or we experience loss in life? All of creation is groaning and we are certain of that. We know that. We have understanding of that reality. We're convinced of it. So on the flip side, when we get to verse 28, Paul says, well, with that same kind of certainty that you're certain about the groaning of creation, you can be certain that God is working all things together for good. You can have that kind of certainty. That God is working all things together for good for us should be something that we grasp with great certainty, with knowledge, with understanding and conviction, just as we have that kind of understanding 
and perspective on the brokenness of the world. So we hear that statement, that God is working all things together for good, and we can be certain of that. So let's probe a little bit, though. What is it that we are certain of? God is working all things, and I'm going to add a word here, providentially all things for good. God is working providentially all things for good. When Paul is saying that everything that happens in the world is happening according to God's decree and eternal will. That's what he's saying. Everything that happens in the world happens according to God's decree and eternal will, even those things that are outside of his moral will, like sin. He is allowing and is using those things to bring about his ultimate ends. God is working in all things for good. Now, this needs some clarification here because it's not that God is seeing the situations in the world, the human events and catastrophes, and responding to each one. Oh, I got a disaster over here. I got to work. I got some sin over here. I got to work. No, he's not responding. He is actively orchestrating, allowing, ordaining all things for his purposes. He's not taken by surprise by anything. Everything that is happening, God allows and is using to bring to his ultimate end. And a word to describe this would be a word we use, it's called providence. The doctrine of God's providence teaches us that providence is how God exercises his sovereignty in the world. Sovereignty, we understand, think about it in in terms of a king, right? You have a a king on earth who's a sovereign, they're a sovereign over a specific territory. And that means they have the right to rule and to reign. Well, God is sovereign over all things. All things are his kingdom. And so he has the right to do as he pleases. But how does God accomplish that which he has decreed to do? That's what the doctrine of providence teaches us. And teaches us about how God carries out his purposes in the world. How is it that God works all things together for good? That's what providence teaches us. John Piper wrote a massive book simply called Providence, and he simply describes providence as purposeful sovereignty. Purposeful sovereignty. Right? Look at verse 29. Right? Paul says here, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Right? If God's aim in foreknowing us, predestinating us, calling us is conformity to Jesus Christ, providence helps us understand how that's going to happen. The means by which God will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. The things in our lives, then, are not this is when we understand providence correctly, the things in our lives are not random acts. They're purposefully ordained by God, allowed by God with one aim in mind. And here's the other thing that's really actually quite comforting about the doctrine of providence. It's not only purposeful, but it's personal, right? It, it applies to you and your specific situation, God is purposefully using that in your life. It's purposeful and it's personal. Some think of the sovereignty of God as cold and distant. That God is 
removed from his creation, but providence teaches us that God is actively at work in the world. And Romans 8, 28 tells us that God is actively at work in the world, working in all things for our good. Providence is personal and personal sovereignty. God is working all things providentially together for good. For good. But when we hear things like, he's working all things together for good, we have to ask, but what is the good? Right? Our experience in life would say, this is not good. Right? The groaning of creation, this is not good. There are things that happen to us we do not call good. So we have to ask the question then, does God use everything, truly all things, for ultimate good for his children? Does he use evil people and disastrous events in the world for good? Does God use wars and genocides for good? Does God use death for good? Does God use sin for good? And the answer to all of these things from the Bible is yes. Now, where confusion often lies for us and things get foggy, we're looking in a mirror dimly, as we don't see how they're used for good, and we may never see how it's used for good. If you die a tragic death, you may not see how that's used for good. But you don't know the effects of that. By faith, we understand that God is using these things for good. And we have innumerable examples from the Scripture and even personal experience of how God uses evil and sin and tragedy for good. And I want to show you a couple of these from the Scriptures. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. I'll put it on screen as well. But whenever the verses are on the screen, that doesn't mean you can't look at your Bible too, right? You need to learn to see things in the Bible for yourself. Acts chapter 2. Of course, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We're familiar with with this passage. We use it often when we're talking about the decrees and purposes of God. But Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching and he says, he's speaking about Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What are we trying to see? We're trying to see how does God Use even the evil events and intentions of people for good. There's a couple things in this verse. One, according to this verse, God purposed to deliver up Jesus. He purposed it. Also, evil men purposed to kill Jesus. Right? These are, according to Peter's description, lawless men. They have no regard for God's law. No regard for who Jesus is. And yet... The good that comes through the evil of lawless men conspiring to kill the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, Jesus Christ. Remember, they could bring no charge against him. What was the good that came from that? Forgiveness of sins. Fullness of salvation to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. God brings good out of even people's evil intent. Look at Psalm 119. In verse 71, Psalm 119 and verse 71, the psalmist says, 
praying, really. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Thinking again of what we're talking about in Romans 8, the goodness of God in all things, working all things together for good. And yet here we have two things, affliction and goodness. We don't typically pair them together, right? The psalmist declaring it was good for him that he was afflicted. What that affliction was, we don't know. Typically, when we're afflicted, we don't say it's good that I was afflicted with good looks and wealth. It's not the kind of affliction we're talking about here, right? Not speaking of ease and comfort. He's not saying that it's good for me that I was afflicted because I'm a masochist and I enjoy pain. That's not what he's talking about. But it's good that he was afflicted. Why? He would learn the Lord's statutes. He said earlier in verse 67, before he was afflicted, he went astray, but now he keeps the Lord's word, right? That's what affliction does in his life. So let me ask, can you say, it's good for me that I was afflicted, and then you insert the affliction there, that I might learn to rely upon the Lord more? That I might learn to trust myself less and trust Him more? And I know many of you in here can say that. Maybe not always perfectly, none of us perfectly, but we do learn, we do grow in those things. One other passage in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. Way towards the back of your Bible. 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. I'm just going to read them. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, think he's writing here to a church, to a group of people, right? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, Peter, just in prior verses, he's pointing out suffering is a part of life. Romans 8, Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying this is experienced by the brotherhood around the world, so there's no exceptions to who will suffer. But notice in verse 10, the time frame after, after you've suffered a little while. Sometimes we want to know, what, what is the little while? Well, it might be till you're dead, right? But you've suffered a little while, and then what? Notice, restoration, comfort, strength, and establishing. What is being made explicit here and in all of the New Testament is suffering and pain and loss in this life. It does happen, but good comes from that. And I need to stress, I think, this point as well. When we talk about the good, it is eternal future good, right? The little while may be your entire life and then you die. But what it comes after that, it is only eternal good. But I do think we also need to see that it's not just like there is no good in this life, right? He uses phrases like, in this life, comfort. And it may be strength for the trial, establishing our faith. Those are good things for us that God uses in our tribulation. So God is working all things together for good future and right now. And that's part of what I think Peter is getting at. One more, Hebrews chapter 11. We know Hebrews 11, of course, is the hall of faith passage. 
And in verse 13, he's just talked about all the patriarchs, and he said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The writer of Hebrews has just talked about Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Jacob, all dying in faith, never seeing the promised Messiah, never seeing that come to fruition in their life. Think about in Genesis chapter 12, God makes that great promise to Abraham, from you, from your descendant will one come, right, who will be a blessing to all the earth. That's ultimately Jesus. Did Abraham see that? No, he didn't. He didn't see that. He greeted it from afar by faith. And in fact, if you're in chapter 11 still, if you look at verses 35 through 38, many of these Old Testament saints, what they experienced in their life was not good at all, right? What does he say? Some were beheaded, some were sawn in two, and yet with eyes of faith, they saw that God is working all things together for good, even though their experience is not what we would humanly call good. So the scriptures are quite clear that God allows and uses everything in the world for ultimate good. And the scriptures are clear that may not be immediately good for us or pleasant for us. Be a better way to phrase it. In Romans 8 again, Thinking about that verse, Romans 8, 28, most of us could quote that from the heart, right? We're well familiar with it. And there is a way in which we affirm and use that statement, God works all things together for good, but we do so in a way that doesn't befit its truthfulness and power. It's like the spiritual band-aid to slap onto every circumstance. You got cancer? Well, God works everything for good. You should be really glad about that, right? That can be the way that we do it. But it doesn't, that understanding of it doesn't befit its truthfulness and power, the comfort and assurance it's meant to provide. Right? We, we often speak Romans 8.28 to another brother or sister or to our own hearts because we know it's the right thing to say. But we don't always believe it. But think about this. Jesus believed it. That's why he could go to the cross. The psalmist believed it. That's why he could say, it was good that I was afflicted. Peter believed it as he suffered for preaching the gospel, ultimately died a martyr's death. The saints of old who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, who searched and inquired carefully, they never saw it, and yet they believed that God actually works all things together for good. Now this is not, don't misunderstand me here, this is not a call to muster up faith on your own. I just gotta pull up my bootstraps harder, try harder to believe this is true. Rather, I think what this is, is it's a an opportunity now to humble ourselves and to cry out to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe all things work together for good, but right now, it doesn't feel like it. I'm really struggling to see that. So with eyes of faith, we look to Jesus and we cry for help and Jesus comes and the help he brings is, look at me. 
Do you doubt the goodness of God in your specific situation? Look at me. See all things working together for good in my death and resurrection. All things working together for your eternal good. But God's working all things together for good. It is limited, right? Paul makes that very clear in verse 28. All things do not work together for good in the same way to all people. Not everyone will see this. In fact, if you think about it, for the unbeliever, those who don't love God, the groaning of a creation subjected to futility is the best it'll ever be. Because they will not turn from their sin, from themselves, and turn to the Savior. Paul gives us two parallel statements to describe who it is that God is working all things together for good for. Two statements, and they run alongside each other. The first is those who love God. That's an internal perspective. And then for those who are called according to his purpose is the divine perspective, okay? First, let's think about this phrase, for those who love him, right? Pastor Jess mentioned this earlier, right? This is the the inward heart orientation of a person towards God, Who is it that God is working all things together for good for? It's a person who loves God. External love for God is a command. Deuteronomy 6, Jesus reiterates it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. But love for God cannot be coerced or compelled. It must be natural, arising from a heart that's been transformed, reoriented to see God as lovely reoriented through transformation and rebirth. Love for God happens because God chooses to place his love on us. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. So God is working all things together for good for those who love him, and we love him because he first loved us. Two passages quickly I want to draw your attention to. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Again, you can look there. It's also on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 64. And he says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. How is God working all things together for good for those who love Him? Oh, here's one example. We now have what Isaiah looked forward to, the Messiah. We now have Jesus, and we love Him. And for those who love Him, we are told that we now have what no other person of old could have imagined right? No no eye before had seen or ear heard, nor had the heart of man even imagined. We have the gift of Jesus and the gift of the indwelling Spirit within us, the Spirit of the risen Christ. So one good that God has given to those who love him is the gift of Jesus and the gift of the indwelling Spirit. Are you not thankful for the comfort and encouragement the Spirit brings as he opens the word? How many times have you in your own personal affliction been ministered to by the word through the Spirit? That's a good that God gives to his 
children. One more, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 12. Of course, James, much of his letter is dealing with suffering and affliction, but he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Promised to those who love him. Here's a future promise. A promise of a future crown in glory. But the crown here, it's, it's not a literal crown. The crown is eternal life with God. Right? That's the good that has been promised for those who love God. Eternal life with God, it's the reward or the prize. And again, James is placing this in the context of suffering, just like Paul is in Romans 8. And he's saying that eternal life is a good which God has promised to those who love him. Very simply, we can look at the things promised and the things that we have in Christ, our own uh, the, the promises of Scripture and we can be further assured that God is truly working all things together for good, even the difficulties of life for those who love him. Here's one other reality, though, that we need to address from Romans chapter 8. We think about who it is that God is working all things together for good for. It's those who love him. But there are some in this room that your reality is, is you don't love God. Right? You don't love God because you're not yet a Christian, right? Only Christians can love God. But you need to love God. You may hear that and you're like, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. What does it mean to love God? Well, here is a very simple explanation. Sin, which we all have, has made a separation between you and God. And so you with all of creation are under a curse, Back in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, the wages of sin is death, right? The payment we earn is death, eternal separation from God. And death and eternal separation from God is not good for you, right? It is just, it is right in God's eyes because that's how great of an offense sin is. And yet the glory of the gospel, gospel meaning good news, is that the justice God demands from sinners for our sin, he takes upon himself in the cross of Christ. So if you're here today and you don't love God, what does the gospel say? It says simply just turn from your sin. Stop trusting yourself. Trust Christ instead. See Jesus as your savior from sin. Then now you can love God. You can love him for his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness and kindness to you. You grow to love God because you see how great of an offense your sin is and how kind and gracious God is to undeserving people. Even for those of us who know and love God, we should never outgrow that reality. God is so kind, so gracious to us. We love him. The second statement, remember there's two parallel statements. Who is God working all things together for good for? First, those who love him. Secondly, those who are called according to his purpose. The first was the inward disposition of the heart. The second purpose or statement now is the divine perspective, right? 
Why is it that God is working all things together for good? It's because he has purposed to do that. And he's purposed to do that for those he has called to himself. We talked earlier about providence, right? God's providence. And from that, I hope you grasped that there is a purpose for everything that happens in the universe. And in that purpose, in God's larger purpose, he has called some to salvation. He has chosen to lavish his grace, his merciful favor upon them. And we who trust in Christ are those. So what Paul wants us to know in Romans 8, verse 28, is that God's working all things together for our good is that we can know all things are working together for good because all things are part of God's purpose. Right? The affliction you experience is the all things. And the all things happen because God has purposed it to happen. God has no bad purpose for his children. God's decrees, his purposes, his will, the scriptures say they are made according to perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge. They're purposeful and they're perfect. And God's calling upon your life to salvation and everything that happens in your life is purposeful. It's part of his purpose. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to land the plane here. Another familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. And Paul rephrases essentially Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good according to his purpose. He rephrases it a little bit here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Right? He's talked about how we are saved, essentially in Ephesians 1. So in verse 11 he says, In him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Now, next week, we get into verses 29 and 30, and what's Paul going to say? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Then Paul continues in Ephesians 1, verse 11. He's predestined them according to purpose. Right? Romans 8, we've just seen that. We've been called according to his purpose. Okay? And been predestined according to the purpose of him. And now he's going to tell us about him who has predestined us and called us. So he says, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things in our lives all things in the universe are working according to the counsel of God's will. And then he goes on to verse, verse 12 to say, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and here he's referencing, of course, the first believers, but the same truth applies as well. It's a conclusion for all Christians. We, were, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God is working all things in our lives, all things in the universe. They all depend upon one another. Right? That's God's purposeful sovereignty, his providence. He's working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So here's where we land the plane, so to speak. Right? In Romans 8, 28, we're enabled to see things, though still dimly, from God's perspective. 
We see that God is working and He has purposed all things for good for those who He has called to Himself. One thing, I'm just going to close with this. Good hymn writers restate truths of Scripture in faithful, faithful to the text of Scripture and creative ways, right? And then good tunes and arrangements help those texts to sink that truth down into our soul, right? I think a perfect example, I I think it's our church's favorite song right now, is Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, right? What a wonderful medley of truth and tune drawn from the Scripture, sunk into our bones. But perhaps one of the greatest hymn texts ever written and yet not sung enough, and we've never sung it until we're going to sing it today, is William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. All right? We've referenced it a number of times from the pulpit, and it struck me this week, why don't we sing this? So I found an arrangement that I think is fitting the text. Of course, William Cooper's life is one that clearly demonstrated God moves in a mysterious way, right? You're thinking about Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Well, Cooper was a man who battled severe, debilitating depression to the point of insanity and committal to insane asylums, right? Multiple times tried to take his own life. And when you know that story about that man's darkness of his own soul and you sing the lyrics we'll sing in a bit and you read Romans 8 28 you think William Cooper's life wasn't really good humanly speaking it's pretty just dark depressing and yet this hymn very clearly demonstrates that God does work all things together for our good we simply trust him the hymn was originally titled conflict Light shining out of darkness. Is that not Romans 8, 28? Listen to what he writes and hear it, and then we'll sing it in a bit in light of Romans 8, 28. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Lord, we've seen from your word that you are a sovereign God working all things according to your purposes and those are good purposes. And so I pray this morning that our faith would be strengthened in that, that we would see your good purposes in Jesus, in our own lives, 
where you grow to further dependence and trust upon him. We pray this in his name. Amen.